When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the waves. This, this is, is the waves. waves. This is the waves. This is the waves. This is the waves. Welcome to the waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and today, anyway, white guys on television. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing we cannot get off our minds. And today, you have me, Slate's TV critic and the host of the Dakota Ring podcast, Willa Paskin. And me, Catherine Van Arendonk. I'm a features writer for Vulture and New York Magazine. So we're going to try this episode to critique the position of white guys on television without sort of repeating the problem that white guys on television currently present, which is that they're not the point and yet they're the point. I want to dive in by talking about this great piece that Catherine wrote for Vulture about the crisis that white guys are going through on television (laughs) right now. Maybe it's like, it's not really an emergency. It's not so bad. So white guys are still, of course, all over television as they are in the world, but they are on television in a different way and certainly in some new shows than they have been in the past. And you can see that in shows like Peacock's sitcom Rutherford Falls, AMC's genre-bending Kevin Can F Himself, and the two big hits of summer, HBO's hotel drama The White Lotus, featuring a bevy of white guys who we're going to get into, and of course, Ted Lasso. Basically, the white guys who used to be TV's default protagonists are not, but who are they? And what does it say about them and us? Catherine, if I were going to keep talking now, I would just shamelessly poach from your piece. So why don't you tell us its central argument? Yeah. For one, I think the framing of it as a crisis, it has been really interesting to see responses from two different sides of sort of people who look at the headline and then then are immediately put off by it. People who are like... I don't want to hear about a crisis for white guys. Like, I'm done. We've talked about them too much. And then, of course, from the other, like, terrifying side of white guys being, like, you know, extremely mad at me and sending me all kinds of emails. But it was in response to something I started noticing as a pattern in new television shows that were coming out this summer. And it was something I saw in Rutherford Falls and Kevin Can F himself in particular. I had this sudden realization that they're like the same show at the core. Uh, And the idea is that there used to be this white guy who was the obvious default protagonist of the show. He would be like the dad figure. He would be the beloved buffoon. He might be like the chosen one character or the love interest or this like charismatic anti-hero figure. And now that we have begun to look at the stories that we put on television and say like, what if we had other kinds of people in the world who were the main characters? That white guy figure no longer works as the protagonist. And all of these shows have been asking, like, well, what do we do with him now? What if instead of being the protagonist, we understand this character as the obstacle? 
And so that is really this thing that I became really focused on in in this piece. Although in something like The White Lotus, it's like, it's not just that he can be the obstacle. It's also like, maybe he can be like the sidekick or like the second thought, the sort of straight up like dad figure played by Steve Zahn, for example, is definitely gets a lot of screen time. But like his story is kind of that he's like lost in his own life at his, with his sort of like beta status. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that character, um, you know, White Lotus works a little bit differently because it is more of this ensemble and there are sort of multiple story threads that are being put together. But the Steve Zahn character is exactly this. I mean, he is sitting in his life and saying, I used to be the main guy and now I'm not. And what, do you want me to just disappear? Like, what am I supposed to do now? And I I found that to just be a, a fascinating question for all of these shows to be trying to probe. One of the things that struck me about thinking about this is like the history of this is actually much longer because the anti-hero show is actually also in conversation mm. with this in a different way, which is like, so the sort of whole golden age of TV, Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, you know, the whole catechism. That was a way of thinking about like, what if the person that's supposed to be the hero, this like strong white guy is actually like a total dirtbag, sleaze, charismatic, awful murderer. Yeah. It was sort of having the same question about like, what if this archetype is is empty. But it wasn't doing it by saying like, we want to then evacuate them out of the center of the show. Yeah. And now we've like gone the step further was like kind of not just enough to question it. Yeah. So we're just at the beginning of it and we're going to get into all of it when we come back. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Thank you so much for listening. I wanted to take a second and welcome all of our new listeners and our old ones too. We have not forgotten about you. If you're loving the show and want to hear more, please subscribe to The Waves. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, check out our other episodes too. Like last week's where we talked about the lesson of Andrew Cuomo's downfall. So we were just talking about how, you know, TV has been thinking about white guys actually for a couple decades now, but it's sort of at a new phase, Um, this phase where it's not just like enough to know that the role of white guys is changing in the culture. They might actually have to sort of like change how they function on TV shows. You had this really interesting and I think important point about how the anti-hero character that we have seen all over television for the last you know two decades, particularly characters like, you know, Mad Men's Don Draper and Sopranos, Tony Soprano and all of these Breaking Bad dudes, they are already posing a version, an earlier version of this same question, which is like, what if instead of the hero dad, who's always great all the time, he was a really bad dude and we understood all of the flaws and like the the troubling masculine problems that are undergirding all of these character stereotypes? 
And I think that is completely true. Like, it is very clear to me that the shows that I'm talking about from this summer are an evolution of this earlier question that was all over prestige TV for the last uh, couple decades. But I think what has been so interesting to see and what I think is a really nascent form of this kind of character development is the way that they explicitly pair that guy with some other character, usually a woman, often a woman of color, and they tie their fates together. So the example that I'm thinking of that does this most explicitly is this Peacock sitcom, Rutherford Falls. The premise of that show is that there is this Native American woman. Her name is Regan. They invent an Indian tribe. She's a member of the Minishanka Nation. And her best friend, like from childhood, is a guy named Nathan Rutherford, who's played by Ed Helms. And he is uh, just the most classic sort of good-natured, bumbling, occasionally clueless white dude character. And the tone of the show, the feel of the show is going to be very, very familiar to anyone who's watched, you know, like a Parks and Rec kind of situation. They are both obsessed with the town history. Nathan Rutherford's family were the white family that founded this town many generations ago, and he He has this huge history museum that he runs, even though he has no experience at all in any kind of museum studies. Regan, meanwhile, has like a master's degree, and all she gets is this little tiny room off to the side of the Minishanka Nation casino. And so... It is not just that they're sort of taking this white dude and then shifting him to the side. It is that they create this other character that we can now see that he is shifted to the side of, right? Like, you can very clearly imagine what Rutherford Falls would be like if it were just about Regan. And if the Nathan character were just this little side note and he was obnoxious all the time and she was frustrated with him. But instead, they have the show really links them together in a way that I find frustrating as I watch the show because I just want to watch the Regan parts, but it is also intellectually like I'm totally fascinated by because I can completely see that it would be like that in real life. I can completely see that he would just be this frustrating, looming figure that she could not escape. And so there is a way that, yeah, it's the same, this problem that we want to talk about, we accidentally recreate by talking about it. And I don't know, there's something kind of honest about how impossible it is to escape that. Yeah, I mean, as you're talking, this is reminding me of, like, honestly now, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 17 years ago, there was a there was an <laughs> NBC sitcom called Outsource that was set in a call center in India, and it was ever, all the characters Indian except for the protagonist who was like, you know, a John Krasinski type, basically. And I rem- I wrote a piece about it that was sort of like, the show is basically saying, or like the network and the people making it, we need you to have this point of view white guy to like get into the world of this show. Yeah. So in something like Rutherford Falls or all these other shows, you know, it's like, I kind of, basically it's like, how real is this? Are they like having their central protagonist white guy and problematizing him too? Like, are we getting to do both? Which is just like, so that the more interesting character is not the Ed Helms character, but like 
in including him in promotional materials and in including him in like the setup of the show, does that just make it seem to most viewers who maybe are not as like interested in some of these questions? Like, oh, this is just like a regular sitcom. Like this is Parks and Rec. I know what I'm getting into. And I actually don't want to watch a show where like the lead is a woman or the lead is a woman of color. I, I think there is just like a lot of having your cake and eating it too. And I don't actually even know what the other solution is. Like, um, you know, you did this interview with Mike White, who's, a, a, you know, a writer and director and creator who also created Enlightened and who wrote The White Lotus. I mean, it was a great interview and he was really honest about some of this because it's sort of like the logical conclusion of some of sort of the more representation-minded scans on like what TV should be like is basically that maybe like white guys shouldn't be making TV at all or like maybe they shouldn't be on TV at all. And I don't really think like that's not going to happen. Obviously, we're so, so far away from that. In that piece, the interview sort of he's talking about like how you should do everything you can to get more people making shows, more people having power. But does that mean like, but he still wants to make shows too. Like maybe he should be able to do that. Um, and, and, and that conversation is actually like a very sort of, I think it's a pretty elevated conversation. Yeah. I think there are two things here. The conversation with Mike White, I, I felt so lucky that he was willing to be as generous with that point of view that he was. And I, I am so appreciative of any creator who you talk to who is just, you know, immediately like, here's how I really feel about this instead of giving you, you know, the 12 paragraphs of network, polished, whatever. But I was also really um, surprised by his admission that he didn't work with a writer's room and sort of that is the one area of that conversation where he kind of glanced off rather than digging into that decision more. And this relates to my second point, which is that I think we have this sense of like a zero-sum game, you know, where it's like either the more interesting character or we're centering the white guy. Or it's white creators can make stuff or they can't make stuff. And I think what I found most fascinating about a show like Rutherford Falls and The the Chair, which is a Netflix show about that, you know, about an academic satire that I think is also part of this conversation, is that there is this narrative way that you can imagine it not being zero sum, that the existence of both of these characters together do not have to mean that, like, one character is taking away from the other character's time or that, like, a Mike White show either gets made or it doesn't and, like, thus white creation happens or it doesn't. Like, there is a version of all of this where the thing that gets made is more interesting, is more rich, is more um, telling to where we are culturally because it is a product of multiple voices or because it gives us both of these characters together. And I don't think Rutherford Falls is fully there yet. I think most sitcoms are not really like fully there yet in their first season. So I also have a hard time like <laughs> saying that the sh that's sort of specifically this show's fault. I think the chair similar, like also is very short as is only six episodes. Like I want to know what later in this show's life, this character would actually be. But I have this probably utopian vision <laughs> of a kind of like, 
understanding this the way that this character archetype enters a show as the obstacle and then the show is better and the story is more interesting because both of those characters exist together rather than just ditching him forever again totally utopian and like not how shows are actually greenlit and not how creators are actually paid but it is nevertheless the thing that i was like in the corner of my eye as i was watching the last thing i want to say in this about this is the sort of trojan horse model that you were bringing up this idea that like you bring in the white character point of view and then the white character just sort of fades into the background which i for me is the, the like orange is the new black model right Again, there is something a little bit cynically and like accurately like this is how stuff actually gets made on Hollywood about that idea where it's like we got to give them the white people and then hopefully they're invested enough that they stay for the not white people. And yeah, like I'm sure that that's real. I'm sure that that is exactly how all of those shows got made and you can like see the mechanisms moving behind it and it's just infuriating. I guess there is a part of me that still thinks that the cynically created engine of here we have these characters that are being forced to exist in the same space is still an interesting narrative, right? Is still worth watching maybe in spite of its cynical roots. I don't know. Uh, I, I want to talk about the sort of like the utopian idea of this um, when we get back, which is to say I would like to talk about where Ted Lasso fits. <laughs> um, we're going to take a break, but if you're enjoying The Waves, we would love it if you'd like and subscribe to The Waves wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear more from Willa and myself on another topic, check out our Waves Plus segment, Gateway Feminism, where today Willa and I talk about one thing that helped make us feminists. I will be talking about Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman of all things, and Willa will be talking about the Babysitter's Club. 75% of people are Christie's, but nobody wants to be one. Um, and <laughs> I think that's I, I, that's a broad generalization, but I'm going to stick with my, my made-up numbers there. And of course, I also am this person. I always like wanted to be a Marianne who's like the shy, quiet one, but I am, I'm just not a Marianne. It just, she has nice, neat handwriting. She's very quiet. <laughs> To learn more, go to slate.com slash the waves plus. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, so I want to get back to what we were talking about and sort of like the way that these white guys can be sort of like deputized in cynical and utopian ways. And I want to get into like the most utopian white guy that there is out there right now, which is Ted Lasso. (laughs) But I do sort of want to just open the context like a little bit and say... That, you know, even as all of this is happening, like if you look at what's airing on HBO right now, like HBO has become a channel about rich white people. I mean, Mayor of Easttown is not rich, but she is white. Like these sort of large shows about like there's the White Lotus, there's Succession, Big Little Lies, there's The Undoing. And so there is something just like interesting about all this stuff happening at once where 
white people are not going anywhere from the center of television. There does just seem to be like some sort of like financial bedrock. And obviously it's true that HBO is also like the channel that made I May Destroy You like Michaela Cole's, you know, brilliant best thing that's been on TV in years, like series. And that is true. But it's like, meanwhile, it's sort of bread and butter has become like Nicole Kidman in um, really expensive scenery. Mm. It's just to say, I think this is like a thing that's this trend is only going to become more pressing because people are thinking about it and more. But it is still just like a little pocket right now of where we are. Yes, absolutely. But certainly it is like a big part of what we're talking about. And Ted Lasso seems to me in a way that surprises me because it's on Apple TV, um, which is like still sort of hard to know how many people have it. Ted Lasso is everywhere. And Ted Lasso is, of course, the teddy bear white. I mean, he's perfect, right? What is he? Um, I mean, I don't actually think he's perfect, but I think that's kind of what's interesting about the show. But he is sort of this like very benevolent American export of like enlightened masculinity. Um, And people love him. Yeah, it has been fascinating to see people coming to the second season of Ted Lasso and either, I think, picking up on some pretty obvious things that the show is is hinting at about how Ted Lasso actually got to be the way he is and like how maybe we should like consider the mental health costs of being relentlessly emotionally open to everyone else but not to yourself and all of that kind of stuff but there is just no question that at least in season one this show rose to the level that it did because of this reading of him as an actually good white man that we could all cling to, like some kind of life preserver that had been thrown out to everyone as we were just drowning amid Trumpism and COVID and, you know, nightmares. And the show is canny, I think, about the way that that creates all kinds of traps for this character about likability and how you create story out of some kind of airless perfection of character. And it also reminds me of another really great moment in this conversation that I had with Mike White about The White Lotus, where he was like, look, I'm not an idiot. Like, if I wanted to write purely virtuous characters, I believe that I could do that. Like, if I wanted to write characters that just everyone embraced and everyone was like, they're amazing, I think I could do that. But it's not what he's drawn to. It has been interesting to feel like Ted Lasso started from that place and is now trying to move to what I believe is a more interesting and like fraught place and is having trouble with the audience that doesn't always want to come along or doesn't want to like read the clues that it's putting down. Well, without getting too like in the weeds about Ted Lasso, I think that it's clear in the back half of the season they're going there and the first half of the season they were idling in a deep way and it became noticeably cheesy. And I think that's sort of what people are reacting to. Um, like that it just isn't as good as it was because it's sort of saving this complication. Yes. I guess the thing about Ted Lasso to me is I really enjoyed last season and it and it, there was just had this sort of element of surprise. Like you just didn't know what you were getting into and then you got this like very lovely rom-com basically and that's always a thrill. And obviously we sort of knew what we were getting into this season and that's always more difficult. Mm. Ted Lasso strikes me as being almost explicitly like America propaganda. I mean, he's very, as you mentioned, it's like, it's in the Trump context of him being coded like explicitly like as this red state athlete man who is instead of being whatever your stereotype about that might be like a football coach is, you know, 
doesn't care about winning, only cares about feelings, is so open to other cultural traditions. It's just like this beautiful American export when um, what we're actually exporting is so much more scary and toxic and frightening. Um, And I guess I just have been, it just feels really easy to me the way that he's been embraced. I don't think there's lots of like complicated thinking about him. I think people understandably maybe want just like this nice, like, like you wrote about this in the piece. It's like on the one hand, you know, he's the white guy, the post He's like, he's the post post white guy. Like he is what you want him to be, but he hasn't actually like done any work and neither have we. He's just like been delivered to us like this unproblematic present that we get to like be like, oh great, it's not problematic. Yay. Like I get to just watch TV without thinking about it. Everything feels so good. And like, I, of course we all want like, fine, watch TV without thinking about it. Sometimes that's what everyone needs. But the way that just been like latched onto is like, like as like a form of self care, like something about it makes me like, uneasy I'm just like really like this is it's so it's just an old sitcom do you know what I mean like it's, yeah. it's like <laughs> it's very well executed but in some way it's like it's like it's gone through the circle so we're back to where we started so now we have leave it to beaver but just like it's you know in 2021 so like the jokes are a little better and it's a single camera you know what I'm saying like it's just I'm like oh have we really gotten anywhere or is this just clever enough to get us back to where we wanted to be this whole time without having to feel bad about it and I think they're going interesting places with Ted's character, but I don't actually think that will change my feeling about the show, which is like the way people have just like describe it as like a warm, you know, as a thing that's getting them through. I'm just like, I find it a little, you know, corny and embarrassing for us, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's one, the line that you just said that I, I think is so interesting is the like he the show doesn't do any of the work to get him there and like we also haven't done any of the work to get him there and I believe that I have no evidence to support this it is just my guess that the stuff that is coming in the second half of the season they knew was going to be coming from very early in making the show. Again, totally a guess. And so they bury a lot of that. And and I think the structure of it is actually very, is fascinating where you front load all of the warm fuzzies and then you go to the place where you make people think about like, how did we get to this place? But the question of us not having done the work about how we get there is also one of those really messy and I think unclear and like homeworky ways that we think about what culture does for us. You know, does the culture come out of where we are or are creators who are doing interesting things like leading us into new ways of thinking? And I think that is part of the question that I honestly don't have an answer to about this entire genre about the like white man is obstacle, right? Is this a reflection of stuff that's already happening, in which case our lead character is this sort of woman or woman of color who is looking at the white man as obstacle? Or is our default perspective like we were the bumbling white guy and we've entered this show and the show is now trying to get us to do this work about looking at ourselves, right? Right. Like how much is this like vegetables and how much is this like just making art in this moment in time? Um and I think that's, I mean, I think you can feel the difference in those shows sometimes, yeah. which sort of to your point before doesn't mean they don't necessarily have something worthwhile if they are vegetables or if they are just, you know, where we are in this moment. I expect that like there's going to be some really, really corny versions and variations mm. on this trope going forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. there'll be some really good ones too. And stuff stuff we haven't 
seen yet, you know? We are at this very didactic moment in terms of TV. Like, that is just sort of where we are. <laughs> 100%. And so you'll see, we'll see more things that are explicitly didactic. I mean, people don't even, I think there's lots of people that think that's good, you know? Yeah. And there is this really difficult to tease out thing where there are some subsets of viewers who will always want a piece of art to be endorsing its characters or like clearly shaming them instead of what it is doing, which is just like depicting the wild and and unpredictable and contradictory range of like humanity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And what's also interesting is I think there's like also a subset of viewers, maybe even a large set of viewers, but they're not kind of as as outspoken necessarily or on social media who really like aren't thinking about it that way at all and are just like along for the ride, you know? And and like shows are trying to thread that needle. And Ted Lasso has thread that needle pretty well, right? Like Ted Lasso is hilarious in the sense of like both absolutely serving people who want like it to be very clear what the show is about and people who don't want to think about what the show is about. It might be like one of the only ones, you know? <laughs> and and the way it can do that is because it feels good, right? So it's like you run into problems when it starts to feel bad. This is why I think the the structure that I just suggested where it like front loads all of this stuff and you can feel it doing again in season two. Although I, I have issues, I have plenty of complaints about it. I nevertheless think is just absolutely fascinating. And like, I cannot wait to see how conversations about the show play out over the next several weeks. And also what I'm secretly hoping they're doing, and they may in fact be doing, is like building over seasons to just making Nate the protagonist of Ted Lasso. So secretly, mm. we'll thought we were watching Ted Lasso, but we were just watching comedy Breaking Bad about, mm. about <laughs> this nice guy. <laughs> Breaking Bad. No spoilers, but let's see what happens. <laughs> What a show that would be. I think that's our show for this week. Yeah. Yeah. But um, before we go, we wanted to give some recommendations. Catherine, what are you going to tell me about? What do you love right now? I have three things that I'm going to talk about very quickly. The first of all, uh, my warm, fuzzy thing is that I have spent a ridiculous amount of time in my life gardening now. I'm that crazy lady with the giant basket, and I go outside, and I like harvest vegetables and things. And I finally plunked down a huge chunk of money, I personally believe, for a set of actually decent Felco garden clippers. And I just want to say, if you are like me and you were like, should I upgrade from my Fisker's nonsense from Home Depot? My answer is yes. They are, they feel like, like your Edward scissor hands and you're just out there and it's like they're an extension of your body. They're incredible. I have small hands and they have an offset clipper shape that I just love forever. So Felco Garden Clippers is one. Uh, and it is a extreme strange divergent turn now. Um, Season season three of What We Do in the Shadows is coming out. Uh, I think when some people watch Ted Lasso and they just want a warm, fuzzy hug of silliness, for me, that show is What We Do in the Shadows. And I have seen the first four episodes of season three. I'm super excited about them. My goofy, beloved vampires are back. They are goofy and beloved. Uh, and then my my final recommendation is a device that has gotten me and my family through the last 18 months or however long this is now. And if you have kids, I would say under the age of maybe like seven or eight, I highly recommend this as like a Christmas level present because the initial investment is a little steep. It is a thing called a Tony box. 
It is a soft-sided Bluetooth speaker, and it has a little magnetic figure that can attach to the top of it. And it is basically like story time that your even, say, two or three-year-old can totally control themselves. You can buy tons of figures to put on the top of it, so all of your Disney stories and whatever, and your kids can listen to them whenever they want. It is how I have gotten any work done for a very long time. My hack, though, is that they sell these creative figures and they tell you you're like supposed to read stories into them so your kids can listen to. No one has time for that. I can't sit there recording content for my children. That is not how this goes. But what you can do is download any of the thousands of free hours of kids story time podcasts as mp3s and just upload those suckers. And my, my kids are obsessed with them. They have fixed bedtime. The Tony box, a thing I will love forever. I want to tell you, Catherine, that in all seriousness, I saw you tweet about the Tony box like months ago and like fell down a rabbit hole. Uh-huh. Where I was like, am I getting this for my children? This looks amazing. And then I didn't, but now maybe I will. Um, uh, my recommendation is a book. And it's a book you've definitely heard of, but it's Richard Powers' The Overstory. Ooh, his yes. like, you know, award-winning novel about trees, which I finally read this summer because I was like, it's summer, I'm going to read a big book. And... I had been, it's great. Everyone says it's great. It is in fact great. But my note about it is it's this sort of this, it's a book about trees, like the importance of trees and everyone (laughs) says that. But in fact, it is also about people. Like there is really a plot. There's 100% a plot and there's 100% a lot of characters. And I almost feel like I was oversold about the trees. Like I was, the overstory was oversold as being about trees in a way that meant me thinking like I was just going to be like learning about like sycamores or something, like <laughs> chapter after chapter. But in fact, it it contains like, it's a real novel with a real story. Um, and it's wonderful and also will make you have lots of feelings about trees and, and the environment as if, you know, I mean, if you're already having too many of those feelings, be warned. But um, I thought it was going to be a slog and it was not. It was, it's wonderful. Everyone should read it. That's our show this week. This episode of The Waves is produced by Asha Saluja, who's filling in for Shana Roth. Susan Matthews is our editorial director and June Thomas is the senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and rate, review wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash the waves plus. We'd also love to hear from you. Tell us all of your Ted Lasso feelings. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week with different hosts, a different topic, but the same time and place. Hi, thank you 